passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Several years ago, some friends and I were camping out in the deserts of southern Utah, exploring some of the different rock formations that are there and different canyons, and had a wonderful time. And as we were looking at the map, we saw that there was one particular canyon that we wanted to go check out. The map suggested that we go one way, and it was the more conventional travel route to that, but being confident college students, we decided to go a different way. And so we journeyed out on foot across the desert on our surefire shortcut, confident in our navigation skills, confident in our rock climbing skills. An hour passed, and we had no idea where we were. We weren't too concerned, though. We looked north, we looked south, we looked east, we looked west, didn't see anything that we could recognize on the map, but decided to keep going the way that we were going, and hopefully sometime soon we'd find our way. Another hour passed, and we certainly were lost by then. And we were starting to feel a little anxious. Our shortcut had become an unmitigated disaster. What's worse than being stuck in the desert having no idea where you are is that we heard a sound, a low hum, off in the distance. We were a little curious, and so we decided to walk towards the hum, and sure enough, we've discovered what it was very quickly. A large, black helicopter began flying towards us. We were a little curious, but also a little nervous. Our nerves were confirmed when the helicopter stopped, circling and hovering right above us, making clear its message, get out now. Apparently, we discovered later that in our attempt at a shortcut, we had wandered onto Native American land, and we're guilty of breaking tribal law as well as federal law. Shortcuts can be disastrous. Of course, we like shortcuts. After all, they're appealing to us. What's not to like about spending less time, less money, and less effort? But more often than not, shortcuts can end up putting us in a precarious position. Why is it that we like shortcuts? After all, oftentimes they're not worth it. I think it's because we hate waiting as a culture. Our culture is considered to be the microwave culture, that we love things now. We want things and we want them now. That's why Amazon Prime's two-day shipping is so popular. That's why e-books are still around. E-books are, are vastly inferior to paper books in virtually every way, except when you want it, you can get it now. You look at the volatility of the coaching changes in professional sports, and it shows that we don't like waiting. In fact, if John Wooden, who was one of the most famous and probably one of the best coaches in basketball history, if he coached today, he likely would not have ever won a national championship. It took him 15 years before he won his first of several national championships. Our culture hates waiting. And our culture loves shortcuts. After all, we live in a culture that tells us that anything worth having is worth having now. And so we risk shortcuts. Sometimes they work. But more often than not, 
they end up in a disaster. When we're traveling, shortcuts can lead to getting us lost or stuck. When we are working, shortcuts can lead to us cutting corners and poor quality in our work. When we are uh, trying to shortcut government regulations, we can end up in legal trouble at work, at home, at relationships, school, and more. Shortcuts can lead to a loss of integrity. Shortcuts are disastrous. As we look at Genesis 16, we see just that. We see a shortcut and we see a disaster that comes from that shortcut. From an attempt to circumvent God's will. You see, Abram and Sarah had been promised children of multitudes. They had been promised children that would outnumber the stars. And yet they had waited for ten years without anything happening. They waited And they waited and they waited and then they got to a point where they decided to, instead of just continuing to wait, instead of just trusting in God, they were going to take a shortcut. And as we see from Genesis 16, the results are disastrous. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 16. As we look at our text this morning, we'll see that it really contains two parts. Really, it focuses in the first part on humanity, and the second part, it focuses on God. And as you may guess, as it focuses on humanity, it focuses on chaos and disaster and just mess that we can create. And then when it comes to God in the second part, we see that there is redemption. There is mercy. There is grace offered to humanity in spite of the chaos of our lives. So again, if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 16 as we continue working our way through Abram's life. As we've worked our way through the story of Abram, we've seen the ups of Abram's life. We've seen the downs of Abram's life. We've seen Abram blaze like a star of obedience and shrivel up like a prune in disobedience. You see, God had promised Abram that he would have children And God promises him this time and time again. He promises him in Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, in Genesis 15. He promises him multiple times that he will have a multitude of children. And then we get to the beginning of Genesis 16. As we turn to the beginning of Genesis 16, it makes it clear that Abram does not have children. As we look at Genesis 16, we see that this takes place 10 years after God first appears to Abram. Notice these words in Genesis 16, verse 1. It says this, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. The text is very clear right here at the beginning that after 10 years of waiting... Ten years of listening and expectantly hoping for God's promise, nothing had happened. Imagine that you are Abram. You are happily living in Haran, and a God you don't know appears to you suddenly, and he says, if you follow me, if you go to a land that you do not know, then I will give you a multitude of children. You're 75 at the time. For decades, you and your spouse have tried for children. But as hard as you try, nothing works. No prayers, no bargains with God, no doctors. You are left childless. And then God shows up. 
And God says, if you follow me, I will give you many children. And I, I just have to think, if I were Abram, I would have journeyed forth eagerly, journeyed forth expectantly, thinking that God was going to bring his promise to fruition, that God was going to answer his promise any day now. Any moment, Sarah would be pregnant and the promise would be fulfilled. I'm sure Abram shared the good news of, of this promise with others as he journeyed forth with his caravan from Haran and shared about why they were going. They would, he would say, it's because God has promised us a son. God has promised us children. And soon this covenant community surrounding Abram begins to wait expectantly, hoping just alongside Abram and Sarai, waiting for this child to appear. Days pass. Weeks pass. Months pass. And months turn into years with nothing happening. Imagine that Abram and Sarai began to doubt God began to doubt that God was actually at work in their life. When they set off originally, I'm sure that they understood why God wouldn't have provided a child right at first. After all, a pregnant woman traveling on foot hundreds of miles, it makes sense that God would have waited. It makes sense that God would have waited until Abram was done with the strife that he, he was in and the engagement of battle that he was in with the, the armies of Cato Laomer in Genesis 14. But years have passed and Abram begins to wonder if they've done something wrong. If they have lost God's blessing and that God will no longer answer and fulfill his promise to them. You can tell that Abram and Sarah in this passage, they are at their wits end. They have no idea what to do here. And that's what the mention of Hagar points to. You see in Genesis chapter 12 in one of Abram's uh, weaker moments, he, he journeys out of fear and doubt rather than trust in God to Egypt. While in Egypt, he acquires a great number of possessions and a great number of servants, including Hagar. And the mention here of Hagar is pointing us back to Genesis 12 and reminding us that this all comes from God or from Abram's disobedience to God. Abram and Sarai wait and they wait, and they wait. And finally, Sarai looks at her situation, at their situation, and concludes that it's not, wait, it's not working. That they need to stop waiting on God, because clearly God is waiting for them. And that's what we see in Genesis 16, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. When we read this passage, we read these verses, we can, we can be put off by Sarai. After all, according to our modern ears, it sounds so obviously wrong what Sarai is doing here. And, and sure... This is not the most moral thing that Sarai has ever done with her life. But that being said, that's not the emphasis of this passage. 
The focus of this passage is not on the immorality of giving another woman to Abram to sleep with. Instead, the focus of this passage is Sarai's lack of trust in God. What's more than that, it's on Sarai's influence or being influenced by the culture. You see, what Sarai suggests here is actually a relatively common practice in, ancient Middle, in the ancient Middle East. We have uh, evidence from Egypt, from Babylon, from Assyria of this taking place. This is a standard practice that if a woman could not provide a child for her husband, then she would give one of her slaves, one of her servants to her husband to provide that child. What Sarai is doing here, it's not recommended by any means. It's not a, a good thing, but the focus isn't on the immorality. The focus is instead on Sarai's lack of trust in God. Her failure to consider God, and instead, the influence that culture has on her. If you look at the first six verses of Genesis 16, you'll see that God isn't mentioned once, beyond a haphazard mention in verse 5. The focus of this passage is not on the action, but it is instead on the fact that no one asks God when making this decision. No one asks God when trying to take this shortcut to his will. And that's the problem here. You see, Sarai is guilty. There's no question about it. She initiates this sinful situation. But even Abram is guilty. In fact, Abram is more guilty than Sarai. After all, Abram is the one who's talked with God. Abram is the one who heard the promise from God himself. If anything, Abram is called by God to correct his wife in this moment, to turn his family Godward as they look for the promised child. But that's not what Abram does. Instead of pointing his wife to God, he is instead filled with doubt, and he just comes to her culturally influenced plan to provide a child. Which is a terrible terrible situation that Abram and Sarai find themselves. And, and just an application point for us this morning. Women, don't be like Sarai. I know that sounds obvious, but don't be like Sarai. Don't be influenced by the culture. Don't look to the culture to provide direction and guidance for you. Men, don't be like Abram. Don't be influenced by the culture. Don't let your family be influenced by the culture, but instead seek God for wisdom. Seek God for direction in your life. Don't be influenced by the culture. So Abram and Sarai, they set out to fulfill God's promise. And notice the language here in verse 3. The language of verse 3 makes it very clear that Sarai is expecting for this child that Hagar provides to be hers. Again, this was another culturally uh, acceptable practice, that this would not be Hagar's child, but legally this would be Sarai's child through Hagar. This is a, a perfect plan in Sarai's mind. They will provide through Hagar the promised child, the, God, the, the one that God has promised to them, one they prayed for for decades, the one that they have waited for for 10 years will be provided through Hagar. At the beginning, it looks like this is successful. After all, take a look at verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. 
The fact that Hagar is able to instantly conceive a child, that she is able to do something that Sarai has been unable to do for decade upon decade upon decade is significant. And Abram and Sarai, they interpret this as a sign of God's favor. They interpret it as a good thing, that God has answered their prayers and that God's been waiting for them to do this this entire time. Just imagine the joy in Abram and Sarai's household. For decades, they've waited for a child. They've waited for God to provide for them. And now he finally has. Hagar is pregnant. But at the same time, there's a great joy in their house. There's also pain. Because after all, God had promised that they would have a child, and and they assumed that God was going to work a miracle. They had assumed that God was going to allow Sarai to be the one to provide for Abram. Yes, God had kept his promise, but it appeared that God had not kept his promise the way that they had hoped. And they had to settle for second best. You see, this moment here, this, this focus in this passage uh, points out that there's a great deal of rationalizing from Abram. A great deal of rationalizing for Sarai. The, the word rationalizing just really refers to an attempt to justify one's behavior through plausible reasons, oftentimes when it's not true. I imagine that's exactly what they are doing here. They are looking to anything and everything as affirmation for their actions. Sarai's pregnancy, or rather Hagar's pregnancy, they they look to it as divine approval. They are filled with a false joy, for they've deceived themselves. I think we do the same so often, don't we? We have a tendency to stray from God, and when we do, we look for anything and everything for approval from God. We try to rationalize our actions and say, you know what, God really does approve of what I'm doing. Just like Abram and Sarai, we think or we try to convince ourselves that God is okay with our actions. But deep down, just like Abram and Sarai, we know that God is not pleased. We know that God is not pleased with our actions. And joy quickly turns to pain, as we see in the last part of verse 4. As this blessing from God, this apparent blessing from God implodes on them. You notice at the very end of verse 4, it talks about this contempt that Hagar has for Sarai. Sounds like it's a very bold move. After all, she is a slave, right? So what's, what's going on here? Well, culturally, the most important thing for a woman at this time to do was to provide a child for her husband. Uh, the Bible doesn't uh, approve of that, but it, it describes the, the way that our, the cultures worked in those days. And so if a man had two wives, one of them was able to provide a child and the other one was not, then instantly the one who was able to provide a child for her husband was socially superior to the other one. So when the text tells us that Hagar looks at contempt with her mistress, Sarai. What it means is that Hagar, who was once a slave, has now been exalted to a socially elite status over her former master. And boy, did she let Sarai know it. She let Sarai know that she was now the one who would provide 
a child for Abram. She was the one who was providing the promised heir, the one that God had spoken of for Abram. She looked with contempt upon Sarai. Sarai's plan had backfired in the worst way. Sarai had hoped that Hagar would provide her with a child, but instead she was now in danger of losing her husband, in danger of losing her livelihood. And so she responds with malice. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. At first glance, it may seem that Sarai is irrational. After all, isn't she the one who suggested this plan? What she's doing, blaming Abram for the predicament she finds herself in might be irrational, but at the same time, it also is completely logical. In fact, she's got a very good point here. Abram is far from guiltless. It's very possible that he has begun to neglect Sarai. He's begun to spend more time with Hagar as the one who's going to provide him with his son. Abram is the patriarch. He's the one who's supposed to know better. This mess is ultimately on his hands. Abram finds himself at a place where he has two options. He can respond with a faith that shines like the sun that we've seen when he defeated the kings like Cato Laomer. We can see him shine like the sun with the faith that God looked at and said, I declare you righteous. Or he can respond with a shriveled faith, and that's exactly what he does here. In fact, Sarai, she looked to cultural influences, cultural conventions for how to provide this child. Abram does the same thing here. Many of you may be familiar with something called the Code of Hammurabi. It was a, a, a contemporary of Abram, and it was a, a list of laws that, that governed not only Babylon, but, but a number of different nations at that time. In the Code of Babylon, there was a provision that said if a woman provides a slave for her husband to provide a child, and that woman gets too uppity, her slave gets too uppity, then she can put her back in her place. So Abram, instead of being the man, instead of bearing the brunt of the difficult situation he finds himself in, he decides to run to the code of Hammurabi. This family is acting more pagan than godly. So he allows Sarai to demote Hagar. And Hagar responds with, excuse me, Sarai responds with absolute vitriol. The thought of losing her husband, her livelihood, leads to her to respond with, with abuse. We don't know if it was physical abuse, but it certainly was emotional and verbal abuse. The, the pain of being unable to provide a child for her husband for decades, coupled with the jealousy of this other foreign woman being able to provide that child instantly, was too much for Sarai. 
And so she made Hagar pay. The wickedness that each and every one of us is capable comes out in a destructive way to the point that Hagar flees the situation. And just take a moment and think, how bad does this situation have to be? How evil does Sarai have to be acting in this moment that Hagar chooses to be a runaway pregnant slave in the wilderness with no one to protect her all by herself? Friends, this is God's chosen family. This is the family that God has decided to use to save every single person who would believe. This is God's chosen family. Just look at the mess that happens. The rat's nest of chaos that happens in trying to circumvent the will of God. And the disobedience of not seeking after God. There's no good guy in this story. There's only worse and worse examples of how to follow God. This is God's chosen family. And just think about the grace that we see here. There is indeed a great amount of grace. See, many of you may think or look at this story of of Abram, and you can relate to him and his passivity. Many of you may look at at Hagar and, and Sarai and the contempt that they show for one another. You can relate to that. It might not be in a love triangle like they were, but you can relate to the mess of life. As we see here, there is good news coming. See, God is in the, the business of using messy situations for his glory and for our good. And that's what we see next. Take a look, starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. See, God's chosen family is impatient. They have tried to seize God's blessing and it results in absolute chaos. They have used They have abused, vulnerable Hagar. God's chosen family decides to abandon her. But the good news of Genesis 16, verses 7 and 8, is that God has not chosen to abandon her. The rest of this chapter focuses on God at work. God is righting the wrongs that have already been created by humans' mess. He is making straight the crooked paths of Abram and Sarah. He's taking beauty. He's taking ashes and he's bringing beauty out of that. And through his messenger, he reveals himself to Hagar. He shows himself to Hagar after she spent days wandering the desert. And he asks her two questions. First, he asks Hagar, where are you coming from? And then he asks Hagar, where are you going? If you look, Hagar only answers the first question. She only says where she is coming from. The answer is clear. She doesn't know where she's going. She's wandering the desert without a plan, lost, alone. And if something doesn't happen soon for her, she will end up dead. And God appears to this woman and he speaks to her. And after we look at the the brutality of Sarai in the previous passage, the words of God here might be a little surprising to us in verse 9. It says this, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. 
The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. God tells Hagar to return to the place where she has just been abused. As we read that, we begin to wonder, well, does God not care about Hagar? Does God only care about Sarai and Abram? Does God only care that they get their property back? That's not at all what God is doing here. God knows that the best chance for Hagar's survival is with Abram and Sarai. Notice what he promises Hagar here. He says that your son will indeed flourish. The implication is if if your son flourishes, then you also will flourish. Second, as you look at the rest of Genesis, the interactions between Abram and his son Ishmael through Hagar, Abram loves Ishmael. He desires that Ishmael would be the chosen one in the next chapter. He desires that Ishmael would be the one through whom all nations on the earth will be blessed. And if Abram loves Ishmael, he indeed also loves Hagar. See, God deeply cares for Hagar, and he knows that the best place for her is back with Abram and Sarai. He realizes that Abram and Sarai will come to their senses. Hagar might not be a wife, but she will be treated with dignity. And so God calls her to return because he deeply cares for her. That deep care for her and for every other person on the face of the planet is so evident in what he says next and what is described in the next few verses. It says this, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. If you notice here, God declares that her son will be called Ishmael. And the name Ishmael, as it's described here, just means he hears. God hears. And in this name, God is revealing to Hagar who he is. He's revealing to Hagar that he is a God who cares. He's a God who hears the cries of those who are afflicted. The language that's used here is used elsewhere in Scripture. It's especially used in uh, hundreds of years later when the people of Israel are being afflicted by the nation of Egypt. It says that God hears the cries of their affliction and he sees what is happening to them. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Hundreds of years later, God hears and sees and acts. And here God hears, and God sees, and God acts. Friends, God does the same today too. God hears, God sees, and God acts. God is all-knowing. But he's not all-knowing just for all-knowing's sake. God acts even when we cannot see. And that's how this story ends. It's a reminder of the mercy of God. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. 
Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You see, Abram, Sarai sought a son through a shortcut. They thought that they could circumvent the word or the will of God. They could be disobedient to reach God's promises. They thought that they could acquire a son through this. But if you look at this text, they did not. They failed. It doesn't say that Sarai had a son, which is what she desired in verse 3. It says that Hagar bore a son. Sarai, for all of her scheming in order to get a child, to acquire the promises of God, fails. And is still left childless. Her plan has failed, but God is still merciful to her. God is still merciful to Abram. God is still merciful to Hagar. Every moment of this story indicates that God is merciful to them and reminds us of the dangers of disobedience when trying to seek out God's will. So really, that's what this story is, is telling us. It's helping us to realize is the dangers of the temptations of shortcuts, just like Abram and Sarai. And forces us to ask ourselves, what are we going to do? What are we going to remember? What must we remember when we are faced with shortcuts? A couple things for us. First, just because culture approves does not mean that God approves. Just because culture approves does not mean that God approves. Remember, what Abram and Sarai did was a very culturally acceptable decision. From an earthly perspective, what they did was 100% logical and 100% correct. But just because culture approves doesn't mean that God approves. We don't have to think too often of modern day examples of things that our culture approves of, but God does not approve of sleeping around for the right match foul language to prove a point, greed, selfishness, lack of compassion to the outcast. Just because culture approves does not mean that God approves. You know, in that same vein, beware of the temptation to rationalize. Beware of the temptation to rationalize because we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to rationalize our own sin. Someone once told me, uh, very wise, they said, you will never lose an argument with the Holy Spirit. You will never lose an argument with the Holy Spirit. The reason why is the Holy Spirit always nudges us. Holy Spirit always points us to his written word, but never argues with us. The Holy Spirit doesn't need to argue with us. Holy Spirit just simply nudges, convicts, and points. We're the ones who are masters at rationalizing our actions. God doesn't need to argue with us. God just points Because God is clear on what he approves. That's our first one. Second thing we can learn, must remember about this is this. Shortcuts can have serious and lasting consequences. Shortcuts can have serious and lasting consequences. In one sense, it appeared as though Abram and Sarai were 100% successful in their plan. After all, they were given a son. But in a truer sense, chaos reigned in their family. There was undoubtedly tension in their marriage. There was certainly tension within their household. Their actions nearly led to Sarai's loss of position in the family, nearly led to Hagar's death. The only innocent one in this story is the unborn Ishmael, and Ishmael almost dies because of the actions of Hagar and Sarai and Abram. 
There are consequences when we try to circumvent the will of God. Remember that. These consequences can be lasting. They can be serious, and they are never worth it. Shortcuts can have serious and lasting consequences. Next one. God is not sleeping. God is not sleeping. What is it that inspired Abram and Sarai to act in this way? They were sick of waiting. They had waited for 10 years for God to provide them with a promised child, and for 10 years, nothing had happened. Sure, God spoke to them every now and then, reminding them of the promise, but for large part, they were sick of waiting. For all intents and purposes, it felt like God had forgotten them, but God was not aware, unaware of their plight. God had a plan to fulfill his promise to them on his timing. The last passage here, the last part, makes it very clear that God is not sleeping. God sees, God hears, God is all-knowing, and God will act. God was not unaware of the plight of Hagar, and he did not let her die in the wilderness. In the next chapter, we see that God is not unaware of the plight of Abram and Sarai and will provide them with a son through a miracle. God is not asleep. So persevere. Next, God is merciful, but consequences persist. God is indeed merciful to us, but consequences still can persist. The mercy of God is so clear throughout the second part of this story when God intervenes. He shows mercy to Hagar. Hagar, remember, she looked upon Sarai with contempt. Yes, she is a victim, but she is also guilty. And God comes through and delivers her. God shows mercy to Sarai. She is vicious. She is double-minded. She is hypocritical. She refuses to trust in God. Instead, turns to culture. In the next chapter, she is promised a son. God is also merciful to Abram. He is passive. He avoids blame. He refuses responsibility for what's going on. He does not trust in God. And yet God's promise to Abram still remains. God is indeed merciful But the consequences of their actions still persist. They are not immune to the consequences. Strife exists and continues to exist between Sarai and Hagar for the rest of their lives, leading ultimately to the full and final exile of Hagar. Ishmael, this illegitimate child, torments Sarai's future son just like Sarai tormented Hagar. We see throughout Israel's history that the descendants of Ishmael are a thorn in the flesh of the people of Israel. God is merciful, but consequences often persist. Years ago, I was a, a speaker at a, a church camp, and there's another speaker there who had a, a wonderful testimony of how God had saved them. They'd spent most of their life spending every waking moment drunken on drugs. And God had woken them up. Just a miraculous, wonderful testimony of God at work But the consequences of this person's life choices for decades were so evident. Most of their teeth were missing from drug use. They were hunched over, weak, fragile, frail, could barely breathe because of their life choices. God had been merciful to this person indeed. But the consequences of their actions still persisted. 
you find yourself at a place where you feel like God is sleeping, if you feel like God is silent, you are tempted to circumvent the will of God, if you're tempted to take a shortcut or just be disobedient in general, I think there are four key choices that we must make as we seek out God in the moments of silence. First, when God is silent, wait. When God is silent, wait. Chuck Swindoll, he's a pastor in Texas, uses an acronym uh, based off of wait to describe what we should do when we are, are seeking help from God and he is silent and we are facing a decision. So the W stands for walk a little slower. Walk a little slower. In our hyper-paced culture, it's easy to think that something needs to be done right away. But instead of moving faster, we should instead move slower. Take intentional time to think through our decisions. A, ask God for increased patience, wisdom, and self-control. Ask God for increased wisdom, patience, and self-control. You might be saying, Jordan, that is completely 100% obvious. But if you find yourself still agitated, still itching for action, it means you need to keep asking. Continue to ask God. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for self-control. Ask God for patience. That's the A. I. Imagine the worst-case scenario that can happen if you waited. Imagine the worst-case scenario that would happen if you waited. If there is immediate action that needs to be taken, it will become very clear to you. It will help you work through that. But most of the time, the answer to that question is unbelievably dull. This isn't a question, uh, or answering the question, no. It's simply saying, not yet. Continue to wait for clarity. And T, think of others who will be impacted by your decision. See, Abram and Sarai were guilty of many things. This is certainly one of them. They didn't think of Hagar. They didn't think of themselves. They didn't think of Ishmael. They only thought of themselves. Think of others who will be impacted by your decision. So that's our first one. When God seems silent, wait. Second one, when God seems silent, pray. When God seems silent, pray. Many of you may be familiar with the name Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is widely considered to be the father of missions to China. Hudson Taylor spent years in China without a single shred of evidence that he was actually doing something that mattered. In fact, he spent six years in China and actually came back to London, spent five years in silence, uh, not, not literal silence, just in so- solitude, praying, seeking God's will, waiting before he returned to China. He later credited those five years as crucial to the blossom of his ministry. When we pray, we begin to mold our thoughts to be like God's. One pastor puts it this way. He says, for many, waiting becomes a chronicle of ever-weakening faith because meditating on the circumstances will leave you in awe of the circumstances. They will appear to grow larger. You will feel smaller, and your vision of God will be clouded. But if you meditate on the Lord, you will be in great awe of his presence, power, faithfulness, and grace. The situation will seem smaller, and you will live, live with greater confidence, even though nothing has changed. When God seems silent, pray. 
It brings our requests to God, but it also focuses us on God and not on our circumstances. When God seems silent, pray. When God seems silent, ask. Ask God, yes, but also at the same time, ask godly counsel. God has put you in a community for a reason. Do not be influenced by our culture as Abram and Sarai are. Instead, listen to godly counsel. I encourage every single person in this room to write down a list of four to five people that you can run to, that you can go to in those times where you need help making a decision. You might not be in that situation right now, but when you are, it is crucial to have counsel ready. When God is silent, ask. And then finally, when God is silent, read. When God is silent, read. There's no better way to mold our thoughts to help us wait than submitting to the word of God. Fellowshipping with God in his word. Being shaped and molded into the image of God through the word of God. If you find yourself reading the Bible and you're not getting anything out of it, read it some more and some more and some more. For the Bible shows us how to honor God. When God is silent, read. These four choices are crucial for us. When God is silent, let us wait, let us pray, let us ask, and let us read. As we see clearly, Abram and Sarai did the opposite. And the shortcut they took was disastrous. And said, let us trust in God. Let us seek God. And be content waiting upon him and his timing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I just ask that you would be with us as you help us wait. For anyone who has been waiting in here for you for a very, very long time, God, I I pray that you would come soon and quickly, that you would reveal yourself to them. God, help us to give strength, help give us strength and courage to trust in you, to wait on you, to rely on you, and not on ourselves, not on our culture, not on our ability to shortcut your will. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.